on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. The more that we can destigmatize this work, the better. Uh, we have a lot of situations, especially in Las Vegas, where people are heavily stigmatized. I mean, in in Nevada, we still arrest sex trafficking survivors, which blows my mind. Sex trafficking survivors are booked. They're put in jail. They are given their one phone call. And then who do they call? Because whose number do they know? They're pimp. And so it's just so frustrating to me as somebody who's working in anti-trafficking that we are stigmatizing sex work so much. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 153 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Las Vegas chef Alicia Chevatone. Chef Alicia is a pop-up chef who hosts multiple events all over the city. She's authored cookbooks with two new ones on the way, including a collaboration with pop princess Tiffany, and she's founder and creator of Dink Cuisine, a rather unique dining concept targeted at a very specific demographic. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 152, my special guest, Chef Alicia Chevatone. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I generally try to keep things pretty light on the podcast in that I don't usually delve into topics that some might consider serious or controversial. But when I spot an issue that I think needs to be brought to the attention of my audience and I can tie it into Las Vegas, I go for it. So heads up, this might not be the Jeff Does Vegas that you're used to. Human trafficking is a massive problem around the world, across the U.S., and specifically in Las Vegas. In fact, it might not come as a surprise to you that Las Vegas has the fourth highest rate of human trafficking in the United States, ranking only behind Orlando, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. I wanted to take a dive into this topic and get to the root of the issue and find out what's behind this high rate of human trafficking, as well as bust some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding the problem. So I reached out to a Las Vegas organization called The Cupcake Girls. And my guest for this episode of the podcast is their executive director, Amy Marie Merrill. We discussed the work that the Cupcake Girls organization does with victims of human trafficking and sex trafficking, as well as those working in the sex industry who identify themselves as consensual sex workers. Amy shared some very shocking facts on who's being trafficked and by whom they are being trafficked. We talked about some of the legal changes that Amy would like to see happen to better protect victims of trafficking and so much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Marie Merrill from the Cupcake Girls. The Cupcake Girls was founded in 2011 in Las Vegas, so founded locally. 
And it was really born out of a need. There are a lot of people that are in the adult entertainment industry um, that are contracted employers um, or contracted employees rather. And so because of that, they don't have access to a lot of the things that you and I take for granted, um, like doctors, dentists, lawyers, uh, healthcare, things like that, um, because they aren't easily accessible at their job, as well as the issue of stigma, right? There is a lot of folks who assume that because somebody is a sex worker, that there is conditional consent there. And so there have been many people who have been assaulted when they try to do something simple, like go to the dentist. Um, there's also this issue of people who have been trafficked really feeling nervous about being in these environments alone. And so we, um, we were really born out of a necessity to make sure that folks have access to everything that they might need to be able to access self-determination and self-empowerment. And so we started in Vegas in 2011. And then, um, a few months after we started actually, one of our program participants um, that we were working with here in Las Vegas moved to Portland, Oregon um, in an effort to get sober and be closer to their family. And when they did that, they called the team here and said, there's nobody like you in Portland. What do we do? We need help in Portland, too. And so the Cupcake Girls Portland branch was started in November 2011. Cupcake Girls Vegas branch was started in February 2011. So really close to each other. Um, But in both situations, what we were doing was really beautiful. Um, We were just literally hearing a need from somebody in the community, whether it would be, hey, I need to get my kids out of foster care um, or, hey, I need a washing machine or my car's broken or I need to get my record expunged because I'm having a hard time getting a vanilla job after being sex trafficked for so long we would be able to just literally open up the phone book because in 2011, those were still a little bit more popular than they are now (laughs) and just go down the list and call everybody that we could think of um, in that phone book, all the doctors, all the dentists, all the lawyers, all the daycare providers, whoever it was, and say, hey, would you consider giving your services to us at a discounted or pro bono rate? And then we'd turn around and give those services to our participants. And we wouldn't just hand them um, a resource, but we'd also say, hey, would you like us to walk with this, uh, walk with you through this? And so we'd have people where we were were sitting in courtrooms with them as they were petitioning to try and get their kids back. Um, Or we would sit with them as they were trying to make the decision in the parking lot to go to their first AA meeting. Um, Or we would go with them and hold their hand as they were going to a dentist office to get dental work after not going for years because the last time that they had gone to the dentist, they had been raped while their kids were sitting in the, in the other room. And so the, the work that we're doing and, and why we got started here was really out of necessity. And the mission of the cupcake girls is to provide support to folks in the adult entertainment industry. So people who are consensually in sex work. So they're choosing this work. It's um, we consider it to be a job, just like any other job. Sometimes you like your job. Sometimes you love your job. Sometimes you're doing your job and it's toxic. It's toxic for you and your family. You need to leave, Um, but it's a job and it's how people are providing for themselves and their families. And then we also understand that people are being sex trafficked and that's when people are being forced, coerced, or manipulated into sex work. And we wanted to make sure that there was support for both of those 
um, populations because they are so different. Um, and then, then they are stigmatized so similarly. And so we wanted to make sure that when people are able to leave these sex trafficking experiences, that there are resources for them on the other side of that. And they're not just, you know, given a pat on the back and said, hey, you know, we rescued you. Yay. Bye. Um, but they're really given opportunities to succeed and they're given resources that they're needing that were stripped from them. Um, so we're ending up giving them a loving, a level playing field when it comes to, you know, equitable circumstances, leaving such a traumatic circumstance. And so it was really born out of that. The vision of the Cupgate Girls is to really provide our participants with self-determination and self-empowerment. So we want what our participants want. We're not interested in saying like, you need to leave your trafficker now um, because a lot of the times those relationships, they're really nuanced. Um, it's scary to leave your trafficker when your trafficker is also the father of your children. Um, it's scary to leave your trafficker when your trafficker is your grandmother and the only community that you've ever known. Um, and so we don't want people to only receive services from them if they're leaving their trafficker. We want them to be able to build up a relationship with us and trust with us so that they can then build up the steps that they need to finally leave. Um, so whether it's saving some money, working an extra job, getting their um, identification, a lot of the times traffickers will hold on to people's IDs, credit cards, um, social security numbers, things like that. And so us going to offices with them and pulling all their paperwork, getting them a savings going so that they can finally leave. Those are things that people don't really think about. And the majority of um, federal government grants and things like that they say that, um, you know, if they're going to be giving you those grants, that you need to have your participants name their trafficker. Um, and we don't do that. Uh, and, and that's been a really, really important differentiation from us and other anti-trafficking orgs, because we're not interested in kind of checking a box, so to speak, but we're really interested in how do we walk alongside this participant well, because every single person's case is so different. You hit on so many things there that we're going to have to unpack over the course of this conversation. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It was just there's there's so many things there and, and things yeah. that even in my my research into what I was wanting to to talk about and what I wanting to put together for our conversation today never even entered into my brain. So we're going to get. Oh, to, I can't wait. We're going to get to all of that stuff, Amy. Awesome. Um, where does the cupcake part come from? There's there's kind of an interesting backstory to this. Yeah. So what we would do when we were doing networking um, into strip clubs, brothels, um, adult, adult entertainment expos is we would bring in food um, because the best way to connect with people is over a meal. So we would bring in sandwiches and salads and things like that. But we also brought in cupcakes. Um, and when people would see us walking into the back rooms of strip clubs and brothels and adult expos, they would yell out the cupcake girls are here. And that's how we got our name. <clears throat> so we're not a bakery. People are always like, oh my gosh, cupcake girls, can I put in an order? I'm like, yes, you can, but they are very expensive cupcakes <laughs> because they're all going to a really good cause. Um, and so we totally do orders and things like that, but we're not a bakery. Um, we are a group of volunteers and staff members, community partners that are all working together in the common goal of ensuring that people have access to the resources that they need. And so a little bit about you, I want to know how you kind of got into this, this, uh, this position of working with Cupcake Girls and, and where, yeah. where does your interest come in working with uh, survivors of, of sex trafficking and human trafficking? 
Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that recently because I'm actually celebrating this year, my 11th year anniversary with the Cupcake Girls. Um, and I was like, uh, just looking back and thinking about all of the things that lined up so perfectly in order for me to be here today doing this work. Um, so uh, as a young kid, my dad's a retired major in the army. Um, and as a young kid, my parents were always very intense about, you know, you give back to the community that you're taking from essentially. So we were always going out and volunteering in different spaces, specifically in, um, domestic violence shelters. And, uh, I have five younger brothers and we would all be in charge of the puppet show. And so we would do little puppet shows for the kiddos that were in those spaces. But then as I was getting older, um, I worked at a bookstore and my first friend in this bookstore, uh, she started telling me about the situation that she was in where she is a sex worker. And um, gosh, I was 16 years old and she was telling me that we had two police officers in our town that were assaulting her. Um, she had been uh, rescued from a trafficking situation and the officers had kept in contact with her and they continue, continued to sexually assault her, unfortunately. And there wasn't any accountability um, for them because she wasn't sure how to get accountability. And so um, me coming from the background that I had, where my dad was this, you know, retired major in the army, and I had, you know, many family members that are um, in law enforcement, I was like, well, let's go to the police department and file a report. And so we did and nothing happened. And um, then my friend built up enough self-determination and self-empowerment where she started sharing her story and um, 12 other people came forward and said that um, they were all either sex workers or they were trafficking survivors and they were being assaulted by these um, two law enforcement officers. And um, that was really my first understanding that people are not treated in the same way as um, me and that I had certain privileges because um, the life that I that I had and, and the privileges that I was born into um they were not stigmatized uh, in the way that society stigmatizes uh, survivors of trafficking and sex workers. Um, And then I went on to be a flight attendant uh, with U.S. Airways, and I saw quite a bit of trafficking on the planes. And back in those days, uh, we didn't really have Google Drive, and Google wasn't as um, reputable, I guess, as people think it is now, where it's kind of like an overall directory, right, for different things that you might need. And so when we had people that were needing something, um, whether they were in a domestic violence situation and we saw them in the airports or whether they were being trafficked and we saw them in the airports, there weren't those placards yet on the inside of the bathrooms where they say, call this number if you're being trafficked. Um, and there wasn't really an understanding of how to connect to local things that we might need to be able to local agencies to um, send these folks to that we were meeting. And so we had some seasoned flight attendants that were just amazing. And they would put a bunch of uh, information on these little USBs and pass them around to other flight attendants and ground crews and agents. And we would connect people with different shelters, safe houses, things like that. And that was really cool. Um, But really the big moment for me was when um, I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2009 to take a job in advertising with Widening Kennedy. And Widening Kennedy is an amazing organization that's been so supportive of the Cupcake Girls since day one. They also wrote Just Do It for Nike, um, which I think is a really interesting and, and cool thing. 
But um, we were working really late on an ad and I went on a run with my dog at 4.30 in the morning and um, saw somebody being punched in the side. Um, And I ran backwards to tell a security guard at a local grocery store to call 911 because I didn't have my cell phone on me because we didn't really carry around cell phones back then. And uh, the security guard laughed at me and said, she's a prostitute. They're just going to arrest her anyway. And so um, I'm hearing this woman screaming um, because she's being punched on the side of the street and then watching this security guard smirk at me. And it was just like something clicked and this rage hasn't really left me, to be honest. Um, And so I went, I got my cell phone from my apartment, ran back. um, But by the time I got back, the woman was gone and I can still hear that crying to this day. Um, it's interesting how your body remembers specific memories, isn't it? And so I waited for the police officers to arrive. And, and when they got there, um, they let me know uh, that, yes, like this, this would have happened. This person was pretty well known for having um, been loitering and um, participating in prostitution is what they called it. So a sex worker in that town. And I was like, well, wait, this person was being abused. Like, what recourse would they have to get safety? Like, how would they get safe from the situation if, you know, even calling the police, they would be arrested? And uh, the officers are like, yeah, that's, you know, essentially like above my pay grade. And I didn't know very much about the police department at that time. So I said, I want to talk to your manager. Um, And (laughs) they were like, well, we don't really have managers. You know, here's our chain of command. And. And so I was talking with uh, captains and lieutenants. And then um, within two weeks, I was sitting across the way from the chief of police, who was uh, Chief Rosie at the time. And she told me the best advice that I've ever gotten. She said, if you want to make any sort of change in this world, you need to get involved with grassroots nonprofits or work to change legislation. So I've dedicated my life to doing both. Um, And then I started with the Cupcake Girl shortly after they had started in Portland, Oregon, because that's where I was living at the time. Um, I started with the Cupcake Girls in February of 2012 and started as a volunteer. I had never really heard of a mission where people were really giving the self-determination and self-empowerment to the participants and not saying like, you know, if you go to these, usually in the anti-trafficking world, what it is, is like, if you go to these classes, then you'll get support. Or if, you know, you go to these church services, then you'll get support. Or if you fill out this documentation, or if you... Um, you know, out your pimp or or things like that, then you'll get support. But Pepcake Girls is just giving support for giving support's sake. And I thought it was really, really beautiful. And I still think it's really beautiful. Um, so at first I was volunteering like 30 to 40 hours a week while doing my full-time job. Um, and then in 2016, I took on the role as executive director of the Oregon branch. And then in 2021, um, I moved to Vegas to help our um, founder and CEO as um, they were furthering the mission of the Cupcake Girls. And then in July of 2021, um, the board asked me to take on the role of executive director of the entirety of the Cupcake Girls after our founder exited the organization. And that's where I've been. That's where I've been since 2021. And it's been an interesting ride to say the, to say the least, but you know, I wake up every single day really proud of the job that I that I get to go to work and, and do because we're actually creating change. We're actually creating movement and supporting people who are oftentimes not only overlooked, but 
intentionally oppressed and intentionally cast aside. And we're saying absolutely not. All people matter. Um, and providing them with the resources that they might need. So it's a little bit of my story. I'm a um, single parent. And so this work is really important to me is um, I have a kiddo, eight years old, Lux um, is her name. And uh, she's been with me along in this work, right? 11 years, she's eight. She's was kind of born into this and uh, hearing her perspective on the work that we're doing and how important it is to her is always really beautiful for me. And she always says, we do this because all people matter. And I just think that's the sweetest thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think like doing this as a person who has not been trafficked, I, I have not been trafficked. I have not been a sex worker, but I have experienced um, sexual violence. Unfortunately, um, I've been assaulted multiple times. And and I also um, am a survivor of domestic violence and it's really interesting to me because there are so many intersections of, um, you know, of course, sexual violence and sex trafficking. And so there are so many times where it just feels like, OK, we're creating we're creating better for the people that we're leaving behind. Right. We're creating better for this next generation. And that's what I get to do every single day that I get to go to work is hopefully destigmatize de- this and and really talk about the things that nobody's really wanting to Talk about because it's uncomfortable. Um, we have a hard enough time talking about sex. And so it's hard to talk about sex trafficking, right? Or sexual assaults. I think it's really important that you, you've you mentioned it several times and you've talked about the stigmatization and you've talked about consensual sex work and things like that. I, I think it is very important. And that's part of the reason that I reached out to your guys' organization versus um, some of the other organizations that are out there. I'm somewhat familiar with your organization through people that I know in in Las Vegas. But at the same time, in looking through what you guys are doing versus what some of those other organizations are doing, sex work is never going to go away, especially especially in a city like Las Vegas. I mean, let's face it, it, it's. It's Sin City. It's the city of sex. I mean, you step off the plane and you're bombarded with advertisements and boobs and strip clubs (laughs) and guys handing out cards saying, call this number and all this stuff. You're hit with that. So the fact that you guys are focusing on the consensual side of it and saying, yes, there are people that are working in this business that don't necessarily need help, that don't need assistance, that that are are involved because they want to be there. They enjoy it. I've had escorts on, on my podcast. I've talked to dancers on my podcast and the people that I've, that I've talked to are people that want to be in, in the business. They're there because they, they enjoy what they do and, and they enjoy why they're doing it. And their reasons for doing it are varied, but, but they're there because they want to be. So the fact that you guys aren't trying to push people out of the business and are just saying, you know what, this this exists, this is here, it's not going anywhere, let's work with the people that want to be here. And at the same time, the people that don't want to be here, let's work with them too and help them 100. move on is is outstanding. So I, I applaud you. you guys for the work that you're doing in in that side of things. I think that that's, that's outstanding. Uh, Jeff, you have no idea. I, it's always really interesting to me. Um, and I was talking to uh, Callie, who you and I were um, coordinating with to, to get this going. So shout out to Callie. She's amazing. It's uh, today's that we're the day that we're doing this podcast is actually um, admin professional day. And so just a quick shout out to Cal. But Jeff, honestly, hearing that 
is music to my ears. I always get a little bit nervous when I do these interviews because I'm like, oof, do I have to explain myself? Do I have to educate, um, you know, Jeff on the importance of understanding the difference between consent and coercion? And um, you already knowing that is just music to my ears, especially being a white male in America. You know, your voice matters so much. And so I just want to say thank you so much for saying those words, especially using your platform to do that. There are people that are dying every single day because of the stigma that we put on sex workers. And I think it's really, really beautiful that you would use your platform and your voice in this way. And I just want to thank you for that. Um, yeah, the, the more that we can destigmatize this work, the better. Uh, we have a lot of situations, especially in Las Vegas, where people are heavily stigmatized. I mean, in in Nevada, we still arrest sex trafficking survivors, which blows my mind. Sex trafficking survivors are booked. They're put in jail. They are given their one phone call. And then who do they call? Because whose number do they know? They're pimp. And so it's just so frustrating to me as somebody who's working in anti-trafficking that we are stigmatizing sex work so much because the reason that sex trafficking survivors are arrested it's not because they're sex trafficking survivors. It's because law enforcement is trying to understand, is this person doing this work consensually or not? And they're willing to, because they're trying to understand that, they're willing to harm the person regardless. Mm-hmm. And and that, to me, just blows my mind. And honestly, it's just, it brings a lot of sadness to me and like actually tearing up because I've been on those phone calls where people are like, <clears throat> you know, I was... I was arrested in 13 states. I have 13 felonies. I was sex trafficked over 13 states and I cannot get a job. Mm-hmm. And so you know what they have to do? They have to do sex work at that point. They don't want to do it at that point. I've heard from so many people that are like, I would love to have a different job. I cannot get another job. Or people that are being arrested because of sex trafficking and they're charged with sex crimes. And so they cannot even live with their own children. So when they're rescued from these trafficking situations and they're booked and they're put in, you know, in jail, their children are separated from them and put into CPS or Child Protective Services, sorry. Um, they cannot be reunified with their children because then they are charged with sex crimes. And so I think it's really it's important that you're using your voice in this way. And I just want to thank you so much for it because it brought a big smile to my face. That's for sure. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, as I say, I mean, it's I've I've spoken with people on my podcast that that are involved in the industry and and through, I, it's a weird weird sort of connection. But through working in, I worked in radio for many years, and part of that was rock radio, and of course comes oh. with rock radio is you know it's all about sexy sex sexy sex, and we did numerous events at various strip clubs and 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 so we got to know a lot of the girls that were dancing in in these places and they're they're lovely people they're wonderful yes. people and 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 good parents and and a lot of them yes were excellent parents better parents than some of the parents that that I know that weren't dancers yep. so it's it is as I say I think it's just kind of that that level of stigma that that exists and is there. And I'm I'm more than happy to kind of blow the lid off some of that if if it if it's at all possible. And and as I say, working, doing something with you guys and having a conversation with you about this whole topic to me 
again, I don't cover a lot of serious topics on this podcast. I try to have fun, but at the same time, there's, there's a world of seriousness out there that I think needs to be looked at. And, and I'm glad that, that you're willing to, to have the conversation and, and I'm glad that we're willing to, to do that. So, so, I mean, we've got, again, we got a lot of stuff I want to cover and a lot of things I want to talk about. We've, we've, we're barely even into this and here we are, we're we're 20 minutes into this conversation and we're, we're, we've barely scratched the surface. Um, So again, you know, sex trafficking, human trafficking in Las Vegas, I wanted to have that discussion because it's there. It's something that's going on. I think it's an important conversation. Yes. What is the current state of trafficking in in Las Vegas and and how does it compare to other cities in the U.S. and, and even other cities around the world? Yeah, the state of Nevada itself is very highly ranked for trafficking, period, whether it's uh, labor trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, The majority of trafficking in the state of Nevada is labor trafficking. And so that's people who are brought into the state with um, the understanding that they're going to be given a job. I was just talking to somebody who was um, working as a nanny for a family for a really, really long time, and they were entrapped in that service. And it was in Summerlin. Um, This person, they thought that, um, you know, they were moving here to take a job. They came here from um, Mexico. They had their green card. And then as soon as they got to that nannying service, the uh, family actually took all of her identification and said, if you say anything, we're going to report you and you're going to be sent back to Mexico, where her family has been struggling with cartel violence for some time. Um, and so the the issue of labor trafficking is huge. And it's not just within nanny services. We see it a lot within maid services. We see it a lot within the security services. We see it a lot within agriculture, right? So labor trafficking is actually the vast majority of trafficking, not only in Nevada, but in the United States. And then there's about 5% of trafficking in the United States that is sex trafficking. And then when we're talking about sex trafficking, we're talking about people who are being forced, coerced, or manipulated into essentially their bodies being used for sex. Um, The majority of sex trafficking is actually parents, families, aunties, uncles, grandmas, grandpas um, that are trafficking their own kiddos and their families for sex. Um, So that is the vast majority of trafficking that we see in Nevada. And that is directly correlated to the fact that Nevada um, has an opt-in sex education system we um, we don't allow people to opt out of sex education, but we um, ask them to opt in. When uh, And the data is super, super clear. UNLV has some amazing data on this, as well as the World Health Organization, as well as Amnesty International, um, where if you give people access to sex education, it's almost instantly that you see an improvement when it comes to sexual assault within families or sex trafficking within families, because kiddos now have empowerment on what their body is. Um, Also, you know, when you're saying like, oh, so-and-so was, you know, touching my cookie or like touching my, you know, hiney or things like that. It's really hard for law enforcement to come in and and really understand what's going on. And so teaching children the correct anatomy and teaching children, um, you know, how their bodies work, it's very vital. Um, We also see a a ridiculously high amount of kiddos that are in the foster care system in Nevada. And that's for various reasons, most of which has to do with the fact that um, a lot of children 
in the state of Nevada, either they are being um, assaulted within their families or they're being neglected. And the main reason for neglect in the state of Nevada is that parents are working multiple jobs. So we have parents that are working two, three, four jobs to be able to put food on the table, to be able to put a roof over the head of their families. And then what happens when you're in that situation? You have a lot of kiddos that are at home for a long amount of time and parents aren't able to give the supervision that they would like to. And it's really sad because parents are really blamed for this, but then they're also asked to um, you know, feed their families in this ridiculous and capitalistic environment, essentially, where people are not being paid living wages, right? I mean, we're seeing people work multiple minimum wage jobs because that's all that really people are paying and, and what's available, <clears throat> which is why I'm so impressed with people like the Wynn uh, Hotel who pay $22 an hour for housekeeping, um, people that pay living wages to folks so that they can provide for their families and so is so important. So then when you get to the cupcake girls, then we get to the people that we serve. So we serve 18 and older. Um, three out of every four of our program participants are coming directly out of the foster care system. Wow. And that is a massive number. And it's something that nobody's talking about. So we are directly feeding through our social systems, through the foster care system that we've created, a pipeline into trafficking. And I just want you to like, I'm, I'm really trying to just like educate people on this because I think it's so important. There are some phenomenal people that are doing beautiful work. Um, Olive Crest is a foster care organization that really works to keep kiddos with their families. They provide literally this, this organization is amazing. They provide like free daycare for people. Um, they'll provide like babysitters. They'll provide um, uh, housing help and food help, things like that. So that we can try and keep kids at home with their families, parenting classes, things like that. But if we're not putting enough effort on maintaining the availability of a living wage and of rent that's affordable for these families, we're going to continue to see this. Mm -hmm. We will. We're seeing kids that are aged out of the foster care system and almost walk directly into my office. We had somebody that aged out of the foster care system like three weeks ago and then came to our office. And I was like, gosh, darn it. Really? Oh, my gosh. Um, and what happens is those people that are aging out of the system, they're really vulnerable to exploitation because what happens is they haven't had a family environment, right? They've been passed around to different houses. The majority of foster care parents, they don't want to have teenagers in their house. And so we have a lot of teens that are in places like Child Haven or other group homes where they're essentially also re-traumatizing each other. And so you have kiddos that maybe one is in foster care because of neglect. Somebody else is in foster care because of sexual abuse. And then they end up uh, traumatizing each other because that's kind of the way trauma works, right? Um, and then when people end up coming to us, they don't really have um, family support or a family system. And so if they screw up, they're on the streets. There's nothing really to support them, which is another th reason that I love um, Olive Crest because they really make sure that people age out well and they'll provide housing and services and things like that. So when people are coming to us, um, they either have had experience with um, law enforcement multiple times, you know, visiting their house when they were kiddos growing up, because of whatever reason, whether it was like sexual um, abuse or because of the foster care system. Um, but those really create these vulnerability factors for sex trafficking. And then um, what we do is we turn around and we make sure that those people have services so that they can get on their feet so that we have partners that will give folks jobs, that will give folks 
housing. We just got a HUD grant. Um, so in 2024, we're going to be able to start providing up to uh, $395,000 worth of housing. Um, it's a huge issue, uh, housing. We have so many youth and um, people that are aging out of the foster care system that are homeless right now mm-hmm. in our state. And so, yeah, that's a little bit of a education on trafficking in Nevada. Hopefully it was helpful. <laughs> Definitely. And I think too, I mean, a lot of people and, and myself included, you've opened my eyes a, a, a lot on, on a couple of points here. Um, I think a lot of people have got this, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a law and order SVU view of, of trafficking. I mean, you're talking about people that are being trafficked by, and I think maybe the story of people being trafficked by a, a, a boyfriend or a husband or, or something like that is, is kind of common. Um, oh, yeah. the idea of being trafficked by a parent is horrifying and revolting. And maybe we just kind of, we knew it was there and didn't really think about it. Um, same thing with a, with a grandparent or, or something like that. I think a lot of people have kind of got this in their minds that, the people that are human trafficking are somebody that's going to grab your teenager off the street and throw them in a van and drive them across the country and bring them to Las Vegas and, right. and force them into sex work. So again, I think you're, you're, you're busting myths here to a degree with, with me, because I, I never even thought about that aspect of it. Not once. And I don't want to say that like those things don't happen. Right. I'm just saying that like the majority of folks are experiencing familial trafficking. So they're experiencing trafficking in their families. They're experiencing generational trafficking because the thing that a lot of people don't talk about is a lot of it was in the culture of the family. So you don't just have somebody that starts off trafficking. Um, They have experienced either assault or some sort of like neglect or something like that. And then they perpetuate that within their family systems. So usually when we're talking to somebody, I mean, we just had somebody um, that was telling their story to us and, Um, They were trafficked within their church. Um, Their dad was a pastor in the church and the elders in their church um, were telling them that, you know, this person needed to submit to the authority of the church. And then they were trafficked throughout that church by their own father for years. And then the father ended up trafficking the children of this person. And so these are stories that we we hear often. Um, But then we also get the stories of um, people try to say it's like uh, the Romeo pimp. Um, which I think is like fine to say, but I also think that like when you close your eyes and you think Romeo pimp, you think of a certain race, you think of a certain gender, um, and you think of a certain look and that is not what it is usually. So the majority of Romeo pimps are actually white males. Um, so we see a lot of white dudes who are in positions of power, who are trafficking other people, whether it's the position of power is because of charisma or whether it's because of the societal, uh, position that they've been put in. Um, Maybe they're like a business person or something like that. Um, We see a lot of pilots that do trafficking. We see a lot of um, community leaders that do trafficking. But then when it comes to the Romeo aspect or like that piece, it's really confusing for a lot of people because they don't understand, well, why wouldn't you just leave? Like, because the story there is that somebody being trafficked, they fall in love with their perpetrator. And um, it can be really confusing for folks because they're like, well, if somebody is trapping, you would just walk out. But there are so many issues with that. Uh, there's a lot of the times that like you are 
starved for love and affection from this person because in the very beginning of the relationship, they shower you with just like gifts and time and affection. And they just tell you the, you're the most amazing person in the world. And then all of a sudden they beat you up and then they tell you, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then they do it again and they pull you into this essentially domestic violence relationship. And then the trafficking begins. Um, And so we see a lot of nuance within trafficking that people, they don't want to talk about because it's not, it's not the easy conversation of like, oh, just make sure that, you know, you don't get kidnapped and thrown into the trunk of a car. And I don't want to say that those things don't happen because I've seen them happen. Um, We see people that are, you know, kept in dog cages or closets or basements for years. And we totally see that happen. But I'm just saying that that's not the majority of trafficking. And I think that the more that we start talking about the way that trafficking is perpetuated in in Nevada, the better so that we can start protecting our kiddos before these things even start happening. After the break, Amy tells us about what, if anything, government and law enforcement are doing about the issues of human trafficking and sex trafficking. And we discuss the role that tourism plays in turning Las Vegas into a trafficking hotspot. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. What kind of a role does Las Vegas being such a a transient city and such a tourism heavy city play in the level of trafficking within the city? Yeah, so it's hard because the majority of folks that I hear that are being um, trafficked on the strip um, or that have been trafficked on the strip, they do talk about, um, you know, being forced into these situations um, by their pimp into the hands of tourists and people that really wouldn't know any better. And usually what the pimp will do is they will send in um, somebody who's being trafficked. They'll send them in and they'll also have them like steal from them. So steal um, watches or money or things like that um, and then give everything back to their pimp. Um, So I think that because it is like a tourism heavy city, it's harder as a tourist coming into a situation like that to know, uh, oh, hey, like this is what might happen and this is what to be looking out for. But also it's a tourism heavy city. And so we have a lot of people that are in sex work. Um, So we have a lot of people that are working inside the casinos, working the hotels, working the strip um, and trying to make money for themselves and their families. And so I think that it can be hard to understand how much trafficking is going on and how much of this is consensual work because sex work is criminalized, um, which is why I'm we've been pushing for quite some time at the Cupcake Girls um, because sex workers have been pushing for this for quite some time to decriminalize sex work so that we would have a really clear understanding of who is being forced and coerced into this and who isn't. Because then we could open up channels of sex workers feeling comfortable to go to the police and say, hey, you know, this happened to me. I was assaulted on the job. Help me out. Um, But it also gives the pimps less leeway to say um, to the people that are being trafficked, hey, if you say anything, I'm just going to get you arrested. And, you know, I have no felonies. They're just going to arrest you. You'll be put in jail forever. That kind of a thing. So it gives the ability for folks to talk about it. We do not have clear data on how much trafficking is going on in Las Vegas. 
We don't have clear data on how much sex work is going on in Las Vegas. Um, we've been trying to figure out how to compile that. But because sex work and sex trafficking are conflated underneath the law, um, it makes it nearly impossible to to um, get clear data on that. And I would imagine, too, that Vegas being, again, such a tourist heavy city where, mm-hmm. as you say, consensual sex work is going on at the same time as the the sex trafficking, it would be a lot harder to sort of split those two and figure out a level of trafficking in a city like Las Vegas, as opposed to a quote unquote normal city that isn't quite so tourism heavy. Right. I mean, we've even seen like um, data has been clear for years that like the Super Bowl and like these big events. So they actually don't bring in more sex trafficking. They don't. But what they do is they do bring in more sex workers and then there are more stings. Um, And once those sex workers are arrested, they're always arrested on solicitation charges, not on human trafficking charges. And so this myth of like sex trafficking being increased during these big events, that directly comes out of sex work being criminalized. Um, And so I think that like once it is decriminalized, we're going to have a clear idea of how much trafficking is going on. And we're going to be able to clearly defeat um, trafficking because we'll be able to define it clearly. But we can't defeat what we're unwilling to define. And so until we um, decriminalize sex work, I don't think that we're going to ever get a clear picture of what's actually going on in Vegas. We talked a, a, a fair bit about the whole familial sex trafficking situation. And and as you say, the situation of people being lured or or kidnapped does exist. Um I know I've got parents that listen to my podcast that have kids yes. that are are in situations or or could land in a situation. What are some of the methods that traffickers use to to lure people into sex trafficking? And I mean, how can someone avoid becoming a victim of trafficking? And and how can how what can parents do to to stop their their kids from from falling into or stop anybody from falling into being trafficked? So something that um, I talk about with my kiddo a lot is consent. Um, And we do it in lots of different ways. Uh, We also talk about no secrets. Um, So something that as we, you know, talked about the majority of traffickers aren't like stranger danger when it comes to kiddos, but it's people that they know. And it's people that they have relationship with and people that feel safe to them. Um, And something that's really important to remember as parents is that the trafficker um, will always groom the parent before they groom the kid. And so if you notice that a parent is trying to make you feel safe around them and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, why don't I take, you know, your kiddo off your hands to take them to this or that or to do this or that with them. Those things aren't just like, oh, awesome. I get a break. Um, You know, I'm a single parent, so I get it. Like sometimes you're just like, this is great. This person feels so safe. And now they're taking them to Chuck E. Cheese. This is great. I am always really, really cautious with things like that. Um, And in fact, I have uh, about five people that I can count that are allowed to um, hang out with my kiddo when I'm not around because they have been vetted for years. And um, because my kiddo and I have a really, really open relationship. So consent always starts with communication and teaching your kid to trust you and to trust that you're a safe space is always the most important thing. And always making sure that they understand that you're not going to be upset at them for sharing something that is distressing. Um, A really great example is my kiddo was sharing with me that 
there was um, somebody in their school that was passing around uh, information about how their brother had shared with them a video of um, people having sex. Well, that to me is a pretty big red flag, right? Um, We have second graders that are hearing about this video about sex. Um, And so we we talked about like, okay, well, this is what I'm thinking that I need to do next. I'm thinking I need to talk to the teacher so that the teacher knows what's going on. And I'm also going to have a conversation with this person's parents so that they know what's going on. Because sometimes kids feel nervous to tell their parent that they had seen something that they weren't supposed to see, right? Sure. Um, And so we want to make sure that they feel like they can go to their parents about this and open up that window of communication. And so Lux is like, yeah, of course. Yeah. But that's because we've built that relationship from the ground up so anytime like if she uh kids are gonna do stuff we all do stuff right like um make a mistake break a glass lie about something whatever it is i always make sure that i don't make a big deal about it and i'll just say oh okay well this happened what are we gonna do next time so that my kid isn't scared to come to me with information that could be distressing the other thing that we do is teaching lex consent from a really young age with little tiny things like tickling. Um, So like, I don't tickle Lux without her consent, or we don't, um, we have really big body boundary conversations, where I'll be like, hey, can I have a hug? And then she'll say yes or no. And if she says no, I do not get my feelings hurt. I do not get upset. I'm like, okay, thanks so much for having that boundary today. Is there a reason you don't want to hug? Okay, you don't want to talk about it? Great. Um, When we go to family situations, I am not the parent that's like, go hug and kiss your grandma and grandpa. If she wants to hug them, if she wants to do whatever, that's on her. But I'm not teaching her that her body belongs to everybody else. I'm teaching her that her body belongs to her first. And I'm teaching her open communication. Um, I always talk about and stress the importance of checking your kid's phone. Uh, Traffickers will always, always, always try and like have private communication with your kids and have secret conversations with your kids. So no secrets. Like if they get a phone, that's, you know, up to you, but making sure that you're reviewing those text messages that are going through. And if you don't have the time to review those text messages that are going through, your kiddo does not need a phone. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important that people understand the phone is almost always the first way that the trafficker is going to be getting into your home and going to be getting into your kids' daily rhythms. So we don't want that normalized. We don't want those secrets normalized. So if you can't take the time to check the text messages, um, don't let your kid have a phone, essentially, is what I usually say. And then the last thing that I always talk about is, if your kid's getting a bunch of random gifts, like if they're coming home with brand new pencils or cool erasers or expensive things like um, magic mixie dolls, if anybody knows what that is, um, but if people are because their kids coming home with expensive stuff, that's something to be really alert about. Traffickers will use whatever means that they can to shower your kid with affection. So whether it's gifts, words or quality time, the trafficker is going to be trying to have as much pull on your kid as they possibly can. So those are the things that I would be alert about. But I really stress the importance of not teaching your kids stranger danger. Um, strangers could be a really big lifesaver in the event of something traumatic happening to your kid and them needing to get away from that trusted person in, in your life and in your kid's life. So making sure that people know like that they can come in, you know, my kid can come and complain to me about anybody that sometimes, uh, like I said, I have five younger brothers and she'll say, uncle John pissed me off. And I'll be like, tell me more about that. What did that look like? You know, but I don't. I'm always team Lux. I'm always team community. And then uh, we work things out together, but I'm never 
over the top distressed or freaked out when she tells me something. Mm -hmm. So I hope that those tips and tricks are helpful. Um, The last piece that's really, really difficult for a lot of parents is teach your kid about their anatomy. Your Mm -hmm. kid needs to know the names of their body parts. We don't, you know, say Kashi, we say vulva. Like, like there are things that we need to be teaching our kids so that if something were to happen, there is no shadow of a doubt that, hey, this person touched me here so that we can stop it before it becomes something worse. Mm-hmm. Those are all I- incredible points. I- I'm not a parent myself. Um, my wife and I don't have kids. We just have a giant hairy dog who is enough <laughs> of a child for us at times. But 100. again, I have a lot of friends that have kids and, and they're all in that age now where they're getting into be teenagers or preteens and they're, they're, on social media. And as you say, they've got phones or they're playing online games at Fortnite or Minecraft or whatever. And I, I know so many of my, my friends who are our parents who are just not terrified, but worried and, and, it should be. and they've all done the, the things that you're saying that they should be doing where they're, you know, I mean, my, my one friend who's, uh, whose daughter plays a lot of Fortnite never gets to play it in her room. She plays it on the public TV and any audio that's coming out is over the speakers and things like that. Like things that maybe seem little and seem simple, but are mm-hmm. clearly extremely important. Right. No, 100%. There was even like a, you know, there's chat features on everything and predators will be doing what predators do. And if they're trying to even have a conversation with my child, I want to make sure I get ahead of it. I know when Snapchat first came out, a lot of people were letting their kids have Snapchat profiles and things like that. And Lux was really upset because I was like, you can totally download like Snapchat and have the filters, but you're not adding anybody on here except for me and Nona. And that was a really big, my mom is Nona. That was a really big deal for Lux because all of her friends have Snapchat. They're all sending each other Snapchats and it's really difficult But then um, earlier this year, when one of the parents had their kiddo and they found out that their kiddo had been communicating with an adult online for quite a bit and they had been sending pictures and things like that. Well, that's why we don't do Snapchat friends. And I think that it can be really hard to understand how quickly these things can happen, because to us, like, I mean, you remember when you're a kid and days just dragged on, you know, Kids can fit so much content into a small amount of time and adults are just trying to get to Friday, you know, (laughs) if you don't, if you don't have time to be reviewing your kids content, don't allow them to get those venues of communication. It's, it's going to be a ton of work for you and you're going to get exhausted and resentful and it's going to be exhausting and um, potentially dangerous for your child if you don't have the time. I want to go back into the adult world here because the kid world is scaring me. It's again, kind of makes me happy. I don't have kids to a degree because it's, I feel like I would just spend all my time worrying, but um, (laughs) getting into the, the world again of, of um, consensual sex work versus sex trafficking, which we've touched on a fair bit. And as, as I said, you know, I mean, particularly in a city like Las Vegas, it's never going to go away. It's, it's always going to be a thing. And there are always going to be people who are, partaking in in that industry what are some of the red flags if a person is um as a client being involved in in the industry um what are some of the red flags to to look out for to see or to watch for if somebody is being trafficked 
Um, I think one of the first things that I always tell people is you are not in charge of telling somebody their own situation. They're in charge of naming their situation themselves, because especially in the helper healer space, especially with an anti-trafficking work, I'll see a lot of people that are jumping to name something. And then unfortunately, they don't name that thing correctly. Um, so we could have somebody that we think is in one situation and isn't, and we could potentially be harming that person. Um whether they're experiencing mental health distress, whether they're in a domestic violence relationship, um, or whether they're in a self-harming situation, right? So a lot of the times I'll hear people say things like, look for bruises and things like that. That is not a good telltale sign. Um, <clears throat> what I usually do is we always at the Cupcake Girls give the mic back to the participant that's in the situation. And so we'll ask them, like, do you feel safe at home? Um, do you feel like you can leave the house at any time that you want? Do you feel like you have the ability to um, go places when you would like to? Is there somebody who's in charge of making sure that you are going to those places? Um, and then we have the conversation about like, are you in charge of your money? So when you make money, who holds on to your money? Um, are you holding on to your money? Do you have access to your money? Um, how much access do you have to your money? And then we'll have the conversation of, do you have access to your identification? So your um, driver's license, your, your social security number, your insurance information, things like that. Do you have access to your kiddos, social security information, their birth certificates, things like that. Um, and then if we're realizing that people are not having access to like fundamental paperwork and things like that, that'll, that'll be a red flag for us. Um, but it won't necessarily be us saying, this person is being trafficked. In fact, it rarely is. I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, we are not looking at somebody and saying, the, these people are definitely in a trafficking situation because that takes the power away from the individual to name their own circumstance. And when we do that, we are essentially coercing them just like the pimp did, right? So when we're telling somebody, well, I think you have this, and this, these are all the reasons why, we're gaslighting them into believing the thing that we want them to believe instead of allowing them to come to those conclusions by themselves. And we don't want to slip in and be another person that's telling them how to live their life. We want them to be able to have access to that self-determination and self-empowerment on their own. So we can ask a lot of questions that can help them come to conclusions on their own. But I really always recommend against telling somebody that they're in a trafficking situation. And worst case, uh, please do not remove somebody from a situation that you think that they need to be removed from unless they're ready, because they will return to their trafficker and they will probably be beat up quite a bit or die. Um, and so it's really important that we allow people to have bodily autonomy and to decide when they're leaving a situation. Um, a really good example is uh, within domestic violence relationships, they talk about how you should never come in between the abuser and the person who's being abused. Um, so you wouldn't go to the, the person who's being abused and say, your abuser's a terrible person. You know, you need to leave them. What's going on? But you always ask the person who's being abused, like, do you feel safe? Is there anything that I can do for you? You always want to be available for them because you're so wrapped up in the abuse at that point that you will do anything to protect the person who's abusing you because that's your reality. And you're more comfortable within that trauma than you are within the freedom that is potentially here for you. That truly, if you've come from a foster care experience too, you've never really experienced. So it's terrifying. And so we allow people to come to those conclusions on their own. And I think it's important that the public does too. I guess it comes back a little bit to that 
stigmatization again too of mm-hmm. of people involved in in sex work and involved in those situations in that there's there's that level of as you say, of stigmatization where people just automatically assume that because somebody is a sex worker, whether they're working as an escort or working as a dancer or whatever, that they've been forced into that position and that they're there because somebody else is pushing them into it. Right. But that's not, as you say, 99.9% of the time that isn't the case. So again, I never even would have thought about that. As you say, not naming a situation without knowing what the situation is. Yeah, it's important that we build a relationship with folks and that we're allowing them access to themselves. So many people, when they're in spaces of trauma, they don't even know what they're feeling. We'll sit down in front of our participants and we'll say, what do you want? And sometimes it can take a few sessions for them even to say, like, I need my washing machine fixed or like, I want to get my kids back or I want to get sober or whatever it is, because they literally have been told their entire existence what's best for them and what they need to do. We want to make sure that we're allowing people to decide for themselves what's best for themselves and their body. Yeah, I guess the last thing that you really need to be doing is telling them what's right for them, (laughs) which is essentially what somebody else has been doing for them, except directing them in a in a negative direction of saying this is what's right for you. And and what's that saying? The road to to hell is paved with good intentions. So exactly, exactly. I, I think about this all the time, Jeff. I'm like, Jeff, if I, if you know that I was having a hard time and you came into my life and you're like, okay, I know all the things that you need to be better because they've worked for me. And so you're going to do all these things, but you have no idea, like how my brain works, how my personality is, how my family of origin is, the situations that I've been through, the life that you would pick for me would never work for me. And then if I came into your life and I'm like, Jeff, you were going to be with me. You're going to be um, a sexual, <clears throat> you're going to be a sexual violence advocate Um, You're going to work with me against sexual violence. It's going to be amazing. You would be miserable, right? And so I think that like we need to stop choosing for other people how they're living their life and allow ourselves as a culture, as a society, to be more curious about how other people want to live their life rather than pushing them into a scenario that we're more comfortable with. I want to talk about local government and and state government and and federal government and what, what they're doing if anything, to address uh, trafficking, you mentioned a little bit earlier how law enforcement is involved, but it, it seems like it's uh, it's not a, a positive experience in a lot of degrees. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's interesting within our client population, we hear a lot about how, um, you know, I've mentioned I first got into this work because um, one of my friends is being assaulted by law enforcement. And as an adult, working within the population that I work with, we hear almost weekly that somebody's being assaulted by a law enforcement officer. And I think that, you know, because there's such little accountability when it comes to police, and we're seeing that, you know, as a nation, and we've seen that for quite some time, but also the foundation of um, how that department was built. There's a lot of issues within um, trust when it comes to the population that we serve um, and the law enforcement agencies. Um, I think that like, uh, you know, Suede, which is a sex worker organization here in Nevada, they tried to pass a bill, uh, Senate Bill 164 back in 2021. And that bill would have made it so that we stopped arresting sex trafficking survivors. That's all that the bill was. And law enforcement came out um, against that bill. And they said that, no, it's better for people to be arrested. And I think that there's a really uniquely... um, 
a really unique misunderstanding about how people are nuanced and how people work um, in this state. Uh, and I think that there is this like idea of one size fits all here, which is really interesting to me because it's such like an artsy place. And so you think that people would understand, right, that it's not one size fits all, that people are so nuanced and different and that's beautiful and be curious about that rather than making judgments about it. Um, but I have a lot of concern for where we're at when it comes to the relationship uh, between sex trafficking survivors, sex workers, and Metro. And I'm really hoping that there can be some clearing up of that. I know the Cupcake Girls was asked to be on a, a human trafficking task force um, by another local nonprofit. Um, and we tried to be on that task force. Um, and we're, we got we got a call a couple weeks ago from a lieutenant that said that we weren't allowed to be on that task force because we um, are pro decriminalizing sex work. And I just think it's really interesting. Like when we're pushing out varied opinions on how to attack an issue um, and when we're not working as a community to attack an issue and we're really siloed in our thinking, we're not going to create any positive impact. We're going to continue to harm a lot of people. Um, so it's been interesting to me. I think like when I'm seeing the laws that are being pushed out that are supposedly um, to help sex workers and trafficking survivors, a lot of them have talked about um, ending demand or criminalizing um, sex workers or um, making harsher, uh, harsher um, penalties on people that are soliciting sex. And as we were saying earlier in this podcast, sex work isn't going anywhere and sex workers aren't going anywhere. And so when we're heavily criminalizing something, what we're doing is we're harming um, indigenous people and we're harming black and brown women. Um, we're seeing an immense amount of people that are in prison and that have felonies. And here in Nevada, we can't expunge crimes. We can only seal them. And so I think it's really important that we really take a hard look at how we're thinking that we're solving the problems that we have. Um, we're not going to be solving any problems by, you know, putting criminal penalties on people and fining them. Um, but we do need to put money into our social services so that we can support the people that are really looking for support and trying to get help. Well, and I think, and, and I mean, I'm not a lawyer or a legal expert of any stretch of the imagination, but I feel like when you talk about criminalizing either side of it, either the providers or um, the users, um, all you're doing is driving it underground and making it less safe for everybody involved, whether it's the, the, the sex workers or whether it's the, the, the clients, you're making it less safe for everybody involved. And maybe I'm, I'm overthinking it, but would that not almost encourage trafficking to a certain degree? 100%. I mean, we saw um, Cortez Masto pushed uh, for FOSTA SESTA to be passed right um, quite a few years ago. And we've saw, seen the detrimental impact of that bill. It's, it's harmed sex workers. It's harmed sex trafficking survivors. So many people have died. And now we're seeing um, the Cortez Masto trying to push for the Earn It Act, which is essentially FOSTA SESTA 2.0. Um, people are not going to be able to vet 
their clients as sex workers. They're not going to be able to make sure if people are safe or not. It's going to continue to push things underground, which continues to harm the folks um, that we're that we're working with. And so there's a lot of concern when it comes to the amount of criminalization and the amount of laws that are continuing to harm our participants. We are seeing way too many people dying. It's wild to me. Um, and I think like the only way that we can like combat that is by providing support and decriminalizing sex work so that we can truly honestly understand who's being trafficked and who's not, and then support the people that are um, being trafficked so that they can get hope and help and healing. Um, and then the people that are doing sex work need to be protected so that they can have uh, relationships with safe clients and not be worried about having to work with clients that are harmful and going to hurt them and worst case, kill them. <laughs> it's, it's deep. It's heavy. It's, I mean, it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of information that, that you've, yeah. you've hit us with. And it's, I mean, again, it's, a it's a big issue. And I think it's an important issue that needs to be, needs to be brought to the surface and people need to be, um, made aware of, of yeah. all of this. If, if there's a person out there who happens to be a victim of, of trafficking, who should they be reaching out to? Is there, uh, I mean, you're yourselves obviously as an organization, but is there, is there anybody else that they should be reaching out to? We have a few trusted organizations that we work with quite closely. Um, Signs of Hope is amazing. We also work with Safe House, which is in Henderson, um, and they provide um, housing and they believe in sex work being a job like any other job and you will not receive any stigma um, within Safe House. And then Shade Tree is also an amazing organization um, that we work with. And same thing, they do not stigmatize sex workers, really fantastic organization. Um, But truly, there is not a lot out there. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are supporting folks um, that are trying to exit those situations. Once you exit the situation, there is quite a bit that is available for you when it comes to job training, job preparedness, readiness. Unshakable um, is an organization that is phenomenal and is led by an amazing woman named Debbie. Um, and they provide uh, opportunities for people to be interview ready, job ready, and even place them into well-paying jobs. And Debbie works really, really hard to make sure that folks have access to um, well-paying jobs, not minimum wage jobs, uh, so that they can actually provide for themselves and their families. And then Dress for Success, led by Norma, um, Southern Nevada, is fantastic. They also provide uh, job readiness opportunities, an amazing organization. But truly, if you're wanting to um, impact this work, please donate to all of the organizations that I mentioned. Um, they are doing amazing, amazing work. And then when it comes to sex worker organizations that are also supporting sex trafficking survivors um, as needs come up, the Red Umbrella Collective is an organization that's local here. Um, and then Suede is also an organization that's local here. So definitely look them up. They're all on Instagram um, and you can contact them there. Amy, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing in such a, a huge way. And I think it's, it's really important what you're doing. And um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and have this incredibly important. And as I say, incredibly deep 
conversation um, with me and and my listeners. And um, if people want to learn more about Cupcake Girls and and donate to your cause and learn more about everything you do, um, you guys are online, you're on social media. How can people find you? Yeah, our handle on all of our social media is at cupcakegirls.org. And then our website is www.thecupcakegirls.org. Um, and you can also reach out to me via email, amy at thecupcakegirls.org. We really value the community and we want to make sure that people have access to this important education on what's actually going on within um, sex work and sex trafficking in our state. And, and I'm happy to set up time to have conversations with everybody. But Jeff, thank you so much for providing this space. It's um, not only appreciated, but it's necessary. And I really appreciate you making the time. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.